0: We are about to read 51 verses out of chapter 7. It's not going to be up on the screen. I didn't make them make slides for for this whole chapter pretty much. So your Bible or your telephone, however you want to do it. You ready? When we get done with Acts, we will have read Acts. Here we go. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and sisters, or brothers and sisters, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into a land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others, who would, who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years, But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. and So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would, stand, would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men... You are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside saying, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire, In a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard the groanings. And I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man of God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in his bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and, of the Red, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you took up the tent of Moloch And the star of your God, Repham, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it with Joshua when they they disposed the nations that God drove out before their fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in the houses made by hand. As the prophet said, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced before him the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Father, I pray that you guide us as the words are timely. And Lord, I believe very urgent. Anoint your servant, I pray. Amen. The greatest concern I have for the modern church is basically expressed right here in what Stephen is accusing this group of doing, resisting the Holy Spirit. I think that's the biggest problem we've got in America right now in the churches. There is this resistance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in the earth for a purpose. Shake your head if you agree. The Holy Spirit is here for a purpose. Uh, And I'm going to do a quick little review here. You ready? Uh, They're going to come up here one at a time. But here's the first one. The Holy Spirit's here to convict. He convicts of sin. And that's not just a one-time thing where he convicts you of sin and you ask for forgiveness and you become a Christian. That's a constant thing. He's always convicting. Every time we start erring or going off track, that's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts to bring us back on track. Look at the next one. He also confirms our salvation. He's the the reason why we know we really are saved. His Spirit bears witness with that. But he also empowers us to be a bold witness. That's what we see in the New Testament. And then we also know, and Jesus set the directive in place, that he was going to guide us into truth. And that is all truth. Not just the truths I like, but the truths I need, the truths that are life-changing. He's going to guide us into all truths. And he produces the fruit of God in us, right? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. We can't, we can't conjure that stuff up. That's, that, that's him. That's the Holy Spirit's work inside of us to produce the fruit that makes us look and, and, and behave like we ought to behave as children of God. And then the last thing here, which is the one you might not be thinking about, but it's where I'm focused today. He prepares the church as the bride of Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit is to get us ready for our wedding party, okay? He's the one preparing us <clears throat> for the bride of Christ. Uh, now, here's... here's you, the. Stephen ends up getting stoned when he gets finished with his sermon. And I'm hoping that nobody has rocks in their pocket because we're going to cover some material today. But the first thing I really want you to get is this. When we resist the Holy Spirit, we are committing spiritual suicide. We are. We were not designed to not be governed and led by the Spirit of God. His whole goal was that he would reside in us. And when we push away that presence, that that work of the Holy Spirit that is very personal in each and every one of our hearts, we are just, as the old saying goes, cutting off our nose to spot our face because we were not designed as children of God that way. So many churches in America are getting further and further off because it's simple they are resisting what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in their midst. Whether it's convict them of sin or whether guide them into truth, whatever it is, if we resist that, then what do we do? We create another man-made thing that basically is, is designed to please us as opposed to lead us in the ways of God. Now, not all churches are doing that. There are some good churches. But there are some churches that are literally... Entertaining the same lies that Adam and Eve bought. That it's about us. It's about me. It's not about you. It's about him. And then there are some churches that are just, folks, I think they're appalling. I watched the Easter service at a church. And there was no way on earth God was in that building. Appalling. Now, that's my takeaway from the sermon, but we need to, we need to that's sort of the last bookend. Let's start at the beginning here. Look at his sermon as a whole. Stephen takes him through a series of stories, and I want you to glean in, in small bits what this story is all about. First of all, uh, he takes him through Abraham's story. It's about faith, it's about promises and how Abraham followed what God said. Then he goes to Joseph's story. Joseph's story is about favor. It's about forgiveness. And then you, you get into Moses' story. Moses' story is about protection. It's about obedience. It's about leading the people of God in the direction that God wants to go. And then you get a little snippet about David and Solomon and their desire to want to build the temple. And then you finish up with what? The children of Israel. And there's one consistent little part of of their story that he really stresses. And that is basically this, your rejection and your resistance to God. You keep rejecting and resisting God. So Stephen is clearly pointing out and accusing them that they're guilty. And that even the prophets that they now seem to revere and want to quote and honor, that they persecuted them when they were trying to preach what God was wanting to do, what God had planned to do, and yet they killed him. And so his message is is pretty clear, I think. When he when he starts summing it up, that he's trying to bring them to an acknowledgement that they are in a cycle, a disastrous cycle, in which they always resist instead of surrender. Basically, it's this: they're fighting God. They continue to just want to resist and fight what God's trying to do. And he tells me he says, "You know, there's no difference between you and your forefathers." because you're doing it all over again. You're rejecting Jesus, and you are persecuting those who are trying to preach the message of God's love and hope. You're just pushing it aside, rejecting it. Um, pretty much, it's like this. You know what? They, they, they thought back to their forefathers. You know, we're from Abraham's seed. They thought back to the prophets and, and, and all of the, the, the you know, Promises and things that God has said, and their memory was, you know what? We're, we're the children of Israel. We're the good people. And I don't know what it is about memories, but sometimes memories seem to hold to the better parts and forget the other parts. I'll give you an example. When I think, when I remember being a kid, I remember I was a good kid. My parents don't always remember it that way. How is that so? When I think back when when the Lord came into my life, you know, basically, I was just, I was a pretty good kid. I worked hard. I was honest. But when the Lord came into my life, he also showed me that I was foul-mouthed and hot-headed. I'm glad I do remember that because it gives me a humility when I think that God would say, yeah, I can use this. Not in that present condition, but I can change that condition. I can use this. <clears throat> Do you remember what you were? Some of you would make me look like an angel. You know who you are. And some of you, maybe you'd say, oh, that wasn't that bad. Good for you. Some of you are raised in church. Went to Sunday school your whole life. Yet I find it interesting that even when you went to church and and was raised in Sunday school and raised in the right ways and all that kind of stuff, that still there was this moment when all of a sudden you realized you needed Jesus. You needed a Savior. Something was awakened. Our memory. We we, we tend to, to let our memory be the staying point. Stephen is standing there in front of this high priest, the Sanhedrin. And you know what he is? He's is a picture of God's grace and redemption. A man who loves Jesus more than anything. And yet he's standing there as a picture of God's grace versus their old traditions. And they're stuck where they were. So this next statement I'm going to make is the most important statement I'm going to say all day. Stephen's account of their history. Would you put that part up there? Stephen's account of their history demonstrates how a current experience battles with remembered experiences. Now, I'm going to give you just a second, because that's that's really what I want you to get: how a current experience battles with remembered experiences. I simply have one point: <clears throat> salvation is not supposed to be a memory. It is supposed to be the heartbeat of our life right this moment. Salvation is supposed to be the very reason why you're living now. Your heartbeat. The Most important thing there is. <clears throat> so with that, let me ask you this question. When's the last time you really felt the Spirit of God moving inside you? When's the last time you were stirred? When's the last time you wept? Or he shouted, or he got passionate. When's the last time you were spending time with the Lord and your 30 minutes in the morning ran out, but you weren't going to leave because he was too real. His presence was too When? The right answer would be recently. You see, the thing is, is it's supposed to be a current event right this moment. Stephen infuriated them. Because he is is talking about something that is right now that he knows. And they didn't have it. He had a fresh experience. You know what they had? They had memories. They had ideologies. They had a tradition. We are Abraham's children. So while he's walking, talking example of grace, they're an example of a dead, dried up tradition. And while he is showing love and reaching out to give them the good news of Jesus Christ, they're responding by getting more and more angry at every word he says. So if you're getting angry at me today, just remember that. I would imagine everybody here is grateful for your salvation. Amen? Praise God but are you head over heels in love with Jesus right this moment? I don't doubt your salvation, but are you head over heels in love with Jesus Christ at this very moment? Sometimes what holds the church back is literally the memories, the memories of God, the faithfulness, When they think about it, because here's the bottom line, folks, it is more comfortable for us sometimes to just live in the the goodness of, of what God has done as opposed to the passion of this moment of being in his presence. We are, the Bible says, the bride of Christ. Everybody understand the terminology? What's the church? The church is the bride of Christ. Okay. Now look at me. We have not even consummated the wedding yet. How can it become passive already? This is courtship. Are you with me? This is courtship, and yet, and yet, for so many people, their relationship. Is already because, well, you know, I, I guess if that's the case, then pastor, I've been courting the Lord for 50 years. Well, good. But I don't know about you, but whether you courted your wife or your husband for six days or six months or two years. If it got old before you got married, it probably didn't happen. Because the courtship is a passion. It's, it's, the, it's the presence. Oh, I can't wait to be with her. I can't wait that I can hold her hand. I can't wait for the moment to be back in her presence. That's the courtship. That's the time in which we're living right now. I don't want my relationship with the Lord to turn into a memory before it's actually turned into the great event. I want it to be a current event. I want my love for the Lord to be so intimate, so so personal now that it just makes the devil furious. <coughs> I'm doing a thing, getting ready for a podcast we're going to do called What is a Christian? And I'm going to tell you something. You ready? I don't want the world to look at me and say, well, he's a Christian. Because that doesn't mean anything to anybody anymore, hardly. But, man, I do want the world to look at me and say, that guy is, He is in love with Jesus. And you know how that happens? See, so much of what we call Christian has got a past experience that makes them want to call themselves Christian. But the guy that's in love, the woman that's in love with Jesus, that's happening every morning, every day. It's current. It's passionate. So think about this. Why do so many people resist a fresh move of God in their hearts? Why? Why, when the Lord wants to be the burning passion and fire inside of us, do we resist that? Well, I'm saved. (laughs) You know, I made a statement in the first service. I want to make it again. Jesus did not die to keep you out of hell. He died to get you back to the garden where every day you and he had a relationship. Every day. That's what he, that's what he, that's what he paid the big price for. You do understand that, right? Easter was just a few weeks ago. He, he paid a big price. Why? To bring back the relationship. To bring back that intimacy that was totally gone. And because of that, he deserves a loving, current relationship instead of an old, tired one, a traditional one. In fact, I'm going to put that up here. A traditional relationship is one that holds commitment at the expense of passion. Well, I'm committed to the Lord. Well, that's awesome. I, there's nobody, I, I don't, the, everybody I know in here pretty much is committed to the Lord. But are you passionate in your relationship? Is it so current that there is a stirring inside of you that you can't wait to be in His presence? Now, here's where you might want to throw a stone, but just listen and hear me out. Folks, too many people, their relationship with Jesus is like a 50 year old marriage, it's comfortable. And it provides companionship. But we ain't married yet. What this relationship is supposed to be is two that are in love, longing for the day when we will be together and be one. I thank God for his faithfulness. I do. I do, but I praise God for the goodness that I can experience daily when I get into his presence and the God of the universe comes right there into my room and we spend time together. Fills up my heart so that my eyes well up with tears as I think, how does such a great God want so much time with me? The day that Jesus saved me will always be the greatest day of my life. But today is the greatest day for me to praise him and to pour my love upon him today. Today. If it's not a memory and it becomes an event. I am not a very complex preacher. Most of you have figured that out, haven't you? I I, I don't go for the wow effect. I, I, I really am focused on just very, very simple things. In fact, I put it up here so that you, you, you could either attest to it or disagree with it, but here it is. Every sermon's goal is a challenge to those present to live in his presence. All I'm really after pretty much every time I preach is to challenge you with something that you can take to make your relationship with Jesus Christ more interactive, more real for now. So that when I get done And I pray my last prayer of dismissal. And you get up and you walk out that door. It is my heart's desire that you are thinking about something that if application is put to it, it's going to encourage you in your walk. It's going to make your walk with the Lord even a little bit more personal. That's my goal. Pretty simple. Because Here's the way I look at it. I do not have enough Sundays to wow you with Bible knowledge. When the bottom line is is that knowledge puffs us up. But love makes our relationship intimate. Now, I still want the knowledge, but I ain't got time to just try to tell you Bible stuff. My goal is I want you to love him so much that every day you want Nurture the relationship that you have with him. Stephen, he stands in front of these people. Boy, they are they are furious. And the more he talks, the matter they get. What is he doing? He is basically <laughs> a representation of God's presence in life now. And 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 it is striking all the wrong chords with this group of people who are basically living in the history of their relationship. God has been boxed. And they now have nothing but their traditions and this ideology that we are good because we are gods. And, and, and Stephen's over here with this passion. And you know what? I have seen that. Folks, I have seen that. I have seen people who are so comfortable in their in their way of the Lord that when somebody gets a little bit excited about Jesus, they turn into wet blankets and just want to put it out. That bothers them. No, when you see somebody excited, you should go over there and rub up against themselves. Oh, I need some of that. I want the passion. The enemy of Jesus and the enemy of the early church, you know what it was? Basically self-righteousness. Just a bunch of people, I'm okay. We're okay the way we are. Don't come in here trying to change us. Don't come in here trying to fix us. Well, I want to tell you something. If if, If you're not excited about Jesus, you're not okay. Something's missing. Now, Pastor, I don't want to hear that. Then you need to hear that. It can't be a memory; it's got to be now. I don't want I I don't want to sing my best songs when I'm talking about His faithfulness in the past, and then whimpering out when when I ought to be just, "I love You, Lord." I praise you. You are so beautiful. You are so wonderful. You know why some people can't really get into that? I love you. I praise you. You're wonderful. You're glorious. Thank you, Lord, for your, for, for, for your visitation in my spirit. Thank you for the stirring. It's a, you know why you can't? Because it's not current. It's not going on right now. They were bent out of shape. And here's a good reason why. God did not get permission to do something new and fresh. How dare he circumvent us, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. How dare he skirt us and get into somebody like Stephen, who's a nobody. Just looking at him so excited, his face glowing like an angel, just makes me want to kill him. it can happen all over again. You might not actually kill nobody, but it drives you nuts when you get around people that are passionate, excited about it. The last note you're going to see is this one. The enemy of great is always the good we're enjoying right now. The enemy of great is always the good we're enjoying right now. If you think where you are is good, then that's the greatest reason why you won't pursue more. You look at me, look at me. You listen? If you, what you, Where you think you are right now is good. That's the greatest reason why you won't pursue more. Because this is good. What if, what if the next thing God wants to do inside your heart and spirit is better than what you have? Are you going to miss it because you were fine with this? You know what's going to change the world around us? They will know we are Christians, what? By our, what? You know what we always think? We always think that's our love for one another. But folks, our love for one another is only, Generated by our love for Jesus, they will know we are the children, they will know we are the real deal because of this passion and love that exuberates from our life. A fire in here produces some activity around me. Would you stand? Father in heaven, I was stirred as I read this verse in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews, in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says to the church at Ephesus, awake, O sleeper, arise. Awake, O sleeper. Arise, and Christ will shine on you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you just awaken us. If we are in the slumber of comfortability, if there's complacency, that we are good in the Lord right where we are. I pray that you give us a hunger for more so that the Holy Spirit can take us to the next level of growth and maturity and passion and fire and intensity that he has awaiting us. I don't want my love for you to be the memories of your faithfulness. I want it to be the praises on my lips of How much I love you right now. I pray this in Jesus' name for us. Amen. Amen.